Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and welcome to the MSA National Official Podcast. Alhamdulillah, I am so humbled and honored to have the one and only chaplain, Kaiser Aslam. Uh, Kaiser is the Muslim chaplain at Rutgers University. Kaiser has studied various classical Islamic sciences in his studies within the United States and abroad and holds a master's degree in Islamic studies in Muslim Christian relations at Hartford Seminary. In addition to his work at universities, Kaiser has served as the Muslim chaplain at Hartford Hospital and as a youth director at various Islamic centers, most recently at the Farmington Valley American Muslim Center. Kaiser has worked with and in over a dozen educational and service-based organizations in the American Muslim community over the last decade. Most notably, he served as the National Coordinator of Young Muslims, the largest Muslim youth group in North America. Shout out to YM. Kaiser is a public lecturer on Islam, Muslim youth, interfaith work, Muslim culture, and various other topics. In his last role as a chaplain at Wesleyan University, he made a major impact on student life and a lasting legacy. He travels regularly to different communities across the U.S. to speak and organize events. Kaiser's thesis at Hartford Seminary aims to provide a definition of undergraduate Islamic literacy for undergraduate Muslim Americans. Kaiser spends his free time commenting on popular culture, consuming scientific journals, reading comics, and adventuring his way through nature. We are so humbled and honored to have Kaiser with us. Kaiser, assalamu alaikum. How are you doing? Wa alaikum assalam wa Alhamdulillah, doing well. It's good to be on with you today. Alhamdulillah. It really, really is. And it's so cool because, you know, we want to delve into a lot of things, but, you know, kind of just reading your bio, I've from afar seen kind of how you've transitioned through life and kind of ended up how you are here. And, you know, I know I even read like an article in the past, like how you were in one career path and you kind of shifted to another and all these type of things. And I don't know if I ever had the chance to actually ask you about that, your journey to kind of being where you are. So I think, but, but I do know with what I did read, it was so like inspirational, mashallah. So it would be really cool. I think before we kind of get deep into Ramadan and things of that sort, if you can kind of just share like a little bit about your journey, like how did you get on YM and then how did you, you know, college and your career change and, and all that cool stuff. I think it's going to be really beneficial for all of us, uh, myself included, inshallah. Alhamdulillah, I'm happy to share uh, a constant theme in my life that I've seen play out over and over again. And I'm sure it's what everyone sees in their own lives is that Allah is the best of planners, um, that we plan and then uh, um, Allah plans. And there's actually a common interfaith expression that says something along the lines of we plan and God laughs. Um, and I, I really see that as being a guiding theme of uh, when we kind of put out our plans, set our interests forward, and honestly do some introspection, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes care of the path that we're on. Um, so uh, that sounds like a broad overview or almost a slogan. Um, but alhamdulillah, I, I, subhanahu I think you've seen a part of this because I've interacted with you throughout the years, alhamdulillah. But uh, I started my quote unquote journey off um, as a typical kid living in the Western suburbs of Chicago, um, went through public school education my entire life. 
and uh, had a lot of geeky interests, just as someone who just said it was would be typical for someone who has like my demographic uh, behind me. So I really had an interest for the hard sciences. And uh, so I was being set up to major in physics and biology. Um, and I ended up actually doing that for my undergrad with a major in physics and biology with a minor in chemistry and art. Uh, so really went hardcore with the, with the hard sciences there, alhamdulillah. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, and as my bio would show, early on I got uh, pulled into is the best words I like to use, uh, YM. Um, young Muslims, uh, shout out to YM Westside uh, in, in Villa Park at the Islamic Foundation School. Um, literally, when I say pulled in, I mean at the age of nine or 10. Alhamdulillah, the local leadership at that point was extremely accommodating and saw there was the, these two kids, my brother and I, you, you know Yasser as well, um, that just would show up at the masjid and they really took us in. Um, so Alhamdulillah, uh, when the YM leadership talks about it, they talk about me having YM diapers. Um, normally they start off at the age of like 13 or 14. Um, but Alhamdulillah, I got an introduction very early on. And I kind of kept that going. Of course, it waned in and out over the years, but I kind of kept being involved within the greater Muslim community, not just uh, within the Villa Park area, but also nationally. Because I think that's one of the strengths that a, a youth group like Young Muslims has that I have not actually seen anywhere else um, that it gives young people the ability of not only developing their own identity, but measuring their identities across different intellectual and youth trends across the country. Um, so Alhamdulillah, I was able to get involved in local leadership and then eventually national leadership as well. And that's when it hit me, uh, almost having that parent's worst nightmare moment where I was choosing career paths. Uh, I was locked into a career path with the hard sciences and going into a career in medicine. And I had to do an honest audit of my time and see of the free time that I have, what do I spend more time with? Reading scientific journals, which I still do on a regular basis, actually, um, really keeping up with trends in medicine um, and, and service along those lines, or was it on something else? And when I did an honest reading, it was actually um, being involved with the Muslim community, helping myself and others develop and understand how their spiritual identities intersect with the rest of their whole being. Um, and I realized if that's what I'm spending more time on, if that's what seems to be bringing me fulfillment, why wouldn't I at least explore a career path um, that has something to do with it? So that led me around my sophomore year of my undergrad at Elmhurst. Um, that led me to start looking into Islamic studies. Uh, first, I wanted to jump in and uh, do a PhD of some sort in Islamic studies. I had thought about going abroad and studying um, at a traditional uh, uh, university such as Medina or UMAE in Malaysia or Azhar. Um, and then eventually, uh, as I was searching and as I was interviewing actually for different PhD programs, I found a field called chaplaincy. And one which I had almost no exposure to. I knew it was something that Christians did, but I had no idea there was a field called Muslim chaplaincy. But it all kind of clicked to me uh, when I, actually, it's an interesting story. I was in uh, going to Boston for an interview. And on my way there, I was supposed to just look at a school called Hartford Seminary. It was really not on my radar. But the weekend I was going to Boston was the weekend of the Boston bombing. And uh, Boston shut down completely. 
Uh, so I ended up spending the weekend at Hartford instead and actually at one of the faculty's homes. Wow. And uh, it's at that space that I recognized that the type of learning I was looking for was there um, because I had already spent some time with this faculty member as I was visiting. Um, but even more so, I look, I saw how the leadership at the seminary really came alive to gather up these students who were studying to doing a master's in Islamic studies. Some of them were doing a master's in Islamic chaplaincy, and they really came together and the faculty broke down for them. Okay, well, we know about the Chechenian origins of, of the uh, uh, perpetrator of the attack. Um, let's learn a little bit about kind of the history of Chechnya to help you unpack some of the backlash that's going to be found. And I really, it really op uh, opened my eyes to recognize that this is a field that allows people to confidently transition from one moment of life to another moment of life. In that moment, it was uh, from uh, uh, not being accused or not having to defend quote unquote Islam once again with another attack of some sort. Um, uh, to knowing some of the background, not to, of course, justify the attack, but know how to confidently respond and confidently kind of uh, be equipped with the information to explain what was happening to, uh, um, uh, in, in whatever era situation they, uh, young people find themselves in. So I really appreciated that and started recognizing that's what I was doing at YM but I had no training for it, where you're trying to help young people understand and live through their Muslim identity in an ever-changing world. Uh, but I had no training for it. I had just been doing it for a couple of years and just literally uh, listening to a lecture, reading a chapter of a book and trying to present it. Here's a place where I could maybe get some form of education on how to do that more efficiently. So that eventually led me down to the um, uh, the road of chaplaincy. And I recognize that's what chaplains do in any uh, uh, context that they find themselves in. I worked as a hospital chaplain for a few years. Um, you transition people from sickness to health, from health to sickness. Um, sometimes conversations from living to conversations about dying, but really facilitating that discussion. I used to volunteer at, an, as, at a prison and same thing, going from freedom to incarceration or incarceration to freedom from a family, blood family, to now a chosen family. How do I make that transition? And what does that have to do with my complex identity with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with myself? Um, so really facilitating those dialogues. And on campus, I see that all the time from a moment of mature, immaturity to maturity. Um, as life starts changing things, as your career starts coming together, some of the biggest um, uh, crises of your life start presenting themselves because we literally pathways are open and what chaplaincy really does is provides you with some sort of grounding as you're navigating through that and I just I thought it was super fulfilling I've benefited so much from people being there and providing that mentorship in my life that this is the only thing I could see myself doing wow subhanallah so then you, so you become the chaplain right and I guess kind of talk to me how your role as a chaplain started to, to, to be right. Because obviously like now this is what you're doing. Like what, what is like the day in the life of a chaplain? I think that would be really cool for a lot of people to, to kind of have insight on. That's a really, really good question. And it's a question that changes depending, uh, or the answer to that question changes depending on um, the time of year, the season, but when the semester is on, typically if I wanted to answer it very basically, it would be, I start my day, um, 
uh, with one-on-one -on -one student meetings. And, and uh, what I mean by that is quite literally, uh, especially in Corona time, everything is on Zoom now, <laughs> um, like we're having this meeting. Uh, it would be from around 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. I'm having back-to-back -back meetings with students um, and students who want a sounding board sometimes. My background is in cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so I try to employ as many of those best, best practices as I can from there, but literally sitting down and having a conversation with students who are trying to figure out how to navigate sometimes their uh, family situations, sometimes their educational situations, sometimes a spiritual situation of some sort, gaining some um, uh, knowledge or just getting a second opinion uh, on trying to help them be what they really want to be. Uh, so that'll and that'll be what my typical days look like um, in from the morning and then in the evenings we host a lot of classes and these are gatherings in which we allow students to really um, be exposed to the survey of practices and thoughts and arts that the Islamic sciences have developed or the Islamic civilization has developed throughout the years. And the whole, or when I say years, I mean centuries. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of that is to encourage them to really look at themselves with a much deeper light, um, to really understand that they're more complex than oftentimes their deadlines and classes are forcing them towards, or sometimes that their families or communities are pushing them towards to really expand their identity in some way. Um, so we host classes uh, typically three to four nights uh, a week. And again, it, it can be anything from a spirituality night in which we'll practice uh, different spiritual practices, sometimes recitation, sometimes poetry, sometimes breathing exercises um, or some sorts of self-reflection. That's typically what we do on Tuesday nights. Wednesday nights, we have more of a study of some sort. Um, right now, we're going through the study of Surah Yusuf, and the idea is as we unpack the themes in this story, um, what themes come up in our own lives that are found within the story. Sometimes on Thursday nights, we'd uh, put together um, uh, more of a, an open-ended story night. Anyone who wants to come and share something, we'd reflect some way. And then Fridays after Juma, we would do uh, current events. Anything that you wanted to talk about and, and have a forum to talk about it, it's open for the uh, community um, uh, to, to take part in that discussion. So it really is providing this communal space. Um, one theme that runs deep within the Center for Islamic Life is Muslims growing up in America have so much, they've spent so much language talking about what they're not that they don't have authentic places to talk about what they actually are. Then um, we want to facilitate that on a level of practices, on a level of identities, and on a level of just kind of transition. Um, so that's what that would look like in the evenings. And then, of course, there's faculty and staff meetings, um, because you don't exist on a campus with 5,000 Muslim students um, without faculty and staff oftentimes having questions uh, when policies are being developed. Uh, when uh, things are being said, like I can give one example right now, uh, there's a, a, a Hindu nationalist group that has attacked a Muslim faculty member in Newark um, as uh, being, uh, as, as painting uh, Indian history as, with too much of an Islamic lens and helping students recognize that student groups come up with statements maybe on how to navigate and craft letters to administration also helping administration and staff recognize what are the sensitivities at play here why is it that this is such an important issue for muslim students uh, or for the muslim community in general so providing that um, kind of resource uh, for staff and faculty as well as they coordinate with muslim related issues or um, uh, muslim the muslim community overall 
Wow. SubhanAllah. May Allah, may Allah reward you guys, sir. You know, I know this may not be the, the episode to tackle this topic, but I think we're going to have to do another one on, on time management. MashaAllah, because <laughs> after hearing all that, and, and of course, given you're a family man with kids and everything, I, I can't imagine how you do it all. So may Allah grant immense barakah in your time. I mean, I mean, I appreciate that. And uh, I've got lots of, to learn. So I, one of the ways I learn is by sharing. So I'd, I'd be happy to share what I know and, and, and learn a lot from what I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. Alhamdulillah. Well, well, we'll definitely kind of actually get into time management a little bit later. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess I wanted to kind of now segment in, right? So you've been doing uh, chaplaincy, mashallah, you're meeting with students, you kind of touched upon how like, with, with COVID and the pandemic, things are virtual. I mm -hmm. guess I wanted to kind of like, kind of slide now into the pandemic. So what has student life been like that you've seen, right? Because we're talking to, we've been asking different people we've been working with, but you're literally working day to day with the actual, with students. So what and how have you seen students navigate through this pandemic so far? What are some of the struggles they've gone through or are currently going through uh, during yeah. the pandemic? Yeah, so I'll see anywhere, at least in the one-on-one -on -one meetings, anywhere between 20 to 35 students in a given week. And sometimes it, that number is so uh, volatile because sometimes it's actually uh, emergencies. Uh, students will call for an emergency meeting because they're facing a really big crisis of some sort, and we have to be available when we can. Um, so I can say that the experiences are vast. Uh, some people are actually a um, having the most productive semesters of their lives um, right now when others are having some of the most difficult moments in their lives. And uh, so it, it just goes to show that, of course, the human experience is super vast, but also the response to things like uh, decreased social pressure. For some people, that's been a godsend um, uh, because they get to finally focus on their academics. They get to work on family situations at home. They don't see college as an escape from their families anymore. And that's actually brought about a lot of good relationship building to the point specifically where students, um, maybe who are coming from homes in which their parents don't live together, they're actually spending time with both of them and repairing some bonds and relationships. And there is beauty to be had, but then there's also the dark side of it where um, it's a really tough time. The reason the university structure has been designed the way it has, has been the idea of uh, horizontal competition and horizontal communication that would take place constantly. That's a part of learning. There are those that do not learn well in an uh, online environment. Um, so for them, it's been really, really challenging. The I'm uh, talking to uh, uh, faculty about this, where there was always supposed to be in a given class, a certain number of people who do really poorly um, in, in their first semester or their second semester. It's just natural. And then people usually um, galvanize together, figure out what their study strategies are going to be, and then really rebound that next semester or that next year. We're seeing actually a huge downturn in that. And one of the reasons is that you'd be usually the social group you established for yourself, a major change that you made that led to some sort of redemptive arc um, in your academic journey. But that's a lot harder to facilitate when you can't change an environment, when you can't change your group of friends because it's been non-existent or that's not something that's kind of available to them. So there have been students that have suffered. Um, and I think uh, we're going to start seeing the effects of that as we return back. The freshmen that came in this semester, um, fall 2021, no, fall 2020, my apologies, 
Uh, time no longer exists as a, <laughs> as a linear concept in my head. <laughs> um, but who have come in, um, it's they don't have the same clicks um, as as they as a typical student coming and they get adjusted by that. They don't have the organizational affiliation. Uh, that usually takes place at a big school like Rutgers. So for example, students that would jump into MSA, students that would jump into their Ahlul Bayt Students Association, be a part of Juma, whatever the case may be. At Rutgers, Alhamdulillah, we're bused to five different Muslim student organizations. Um, wow. So uh, it's, it's a complicated system, but a very necessary system because you can't have a, a campus with this many Muslims and there only be one leadership uh, board. There has to be multiple leadership boards. So it's, they actually have, some have amazing relationships with each other. Some have uh, working relationships with each other, inshallah. <laughs> um, and uh, so all of their intake has been quite limited. Because again, freshmen, it's really hard to engage with people and develop those social bonds um, when you meet for an event on Zoom. That's, that's just tough to do. So that suffered um, people choosing their majors. I think that's gotten slowed down. Some people are coming in with lower academic performance and the university understands this. So there's meetings constantly on, uh, are certain uh, subjects supposed to be pass fail if students want them to be, to kind of counteract some of these uh, uh, just general concepts or low academic performance. So it, well, all I can say is it's individualized um, and people need to do an honest audit for themselves. Uh, how has this pandemic affected my academic performance or my experience in my education? Um, and then adjust accordingly as things start opening back up. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, kind of transitioning then, right? You, the last thing you said, as things start to like open back up, and I'm sure a lot of students are looking forward to that, uh, given what a lot of us, myself first and foremost, went through last year, right? Um, there was ups and of course there, there were downs as well. So I think, at least for myself, you know, when they say, man, I, I really need Ramadan this up, like I really need it. Like I feel like it reaches a whole new level for, for, the, for next week, inshallah, or if you're already listening, this Ramadan, it's like so needed for, I think, for, for all of us, inshallah. Yeah. So I guess like just kind of really getting into Ramadan now, you know, students are really looking forward to this myself first and foremost how can we make the most out of it right you know some masajid may be open some may not but mm -hmm. we really need this ramadan to kind of you know set the tone inshallah for 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 the upcoming year how, yeah what would you advise definitely i think one of the natures of ramadan which is so beautiful is it's meant to shake you up it's meant to wake you up um, and of course, that means literally, because a lot of us are waking up for suhoor, inshallah. So we're waking up at a time that's different than normal. But I mean, it, it is supposed to be disruptive to your life in the most positive way ever. Um, to the point where I, I like thinking about this just physically, first and foremost. Um, most of our diets change significantly in Ramadan. And I know I go through almost zombie mode the first two or three days as I have to cure myself of my caffeine addiction. <laughs> right where like normally around this time of the day i will have been uh, had coffee already um, um I, I do one of those keto coffees with a ton of butter in it uh, <laughs> that's, that's a whole other side topic um but you get yourself off of the sugars and the caffeine and these random things that really start running your life instead of you running your life. So it's a wake up call for you um, in terms of the diet that you have. It's a wake up call in terms of your schedule because we get so monotonous 
in our day-to-day -day, uh, routines that Ramadan is meant to just shake it up. And what better way of becoming more aware of our deen, or of our uh, routines than also increasing in spiritual practice. So you bring God consciousness in as you're reassessing your routines that you are normally on. It'll make you feel things that maybe you haven't felt for a long time. And especially people who like, quote unquote, hacking their schedules, they get themselves to a point or people who are, quote unquote, super efficient, they get to the point where they're never hungry. Why? Because they've gotten their meals all figured out. And you actually almost start living an inhuman existence because what you feel will be so different than what someone else feels because you have manufactured it um, in, in some specific way. And I usually like telling students to think about even the, the types of food you consume. Um, you, I could almost build an individual fingerprint of you by your shopping habits for the food that you eat. And it becomes one of the um, uh, means uh, of which to separate people that what's one of the ways that people look at like one class of people versus another class of people actually comes down to what they eat. Um, it's one of the biggest, uh, what's the term I'm looking for, like segregatory uh, uh, aspects within our society uh, that People of an upper class shop and eat certain foods. People of middle class shop at certain foods. People who are financially struggling shop at certain places. But it's a way to separate. Ramadan actually forces everyone to feel actually the most human and the most uh, uh, humanizing experience, which is what hunger and thirst. That's like, oh, wait, I am just like everyone else. I'm not this artificial life I've constructed around me. So there's like those beautiful elements that are just built into it of what, uh, uh, what our human experience was supposed to be and waking ourselves up to recognize, no, that's actually who you are. Uh, it doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter how uh, successful you think you are, how successful the world thinks you are, how much of a failure the world thinks you are, or you think you are. It doesn't matter. You're going to feel hunger and thirst just like other people. So it's humanizing in that way. Um, so my, my general kind of take is let it shake you up um, and let it, let it allow you, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, let you become more God conscious because of the disruption that it causes. I love it. I love it. So, so you mentioned a lot of like the physical, uh, mm -hmm. um, right? So like in terms of like the spirituality, so what will like the physical automatically cause that? Or are there other things that you would advise students to engage in to also get that, that spiritual uh, feel, if you will? Definitely. So, of course, it's not just meant to be the physical. Um, there's a hadith of the Prophet wasallam that says something along the lines of, um, there are those who will fast in Ramadan and all they will get out of is, is uh, hunger and thirst. And may Allah SWT prevent us from, from being amongst them. I mean, because their goals are really a lot more lofty than that. Um, but that is, but I don't want to underpin that. It is a part of it. You're supposed to allow that to take its effect, but that actually opens the door to once you're reassessing your practices, this is when we start uh, understanding and appreciating that the first ayah about Ramadan found in Surah Al-Baqarah is not um, uh, like fasting is prescribed on you just as it was the people before you, but actually the ayah beforehand is the month of Ramadan is the one in which the Quran was revealed. So this really is the month in which you reassess what your relationship to the Quran is. My general advice for people is look at the Quran as if you've never seen it before. 
Um, because some, some of us get too comfortable. You're like, yeah, I read it when I was seven years old. And maybe if you finished the Quran back then, no, approach it as if you've never seen it before. And why even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when introducing the Quran, uh, the month of Ramadan is a very late revelation in the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu But right after it talks about it, it talks about hudan nas wa furqan. Um, it talks about four different names of the Quran as if introducing the Quran for the first time. So this is where you're supposed to look at it and be like, okay, so how, how have I never approached the Quran before? And my advice to people who are thinking about this for the first time is um, if you've never read an English translation of the Quran, maybe open up an English translation of the Quran and your goal along with the Arabic recitation, because we all we're supposed to increase that as well. But if you don't understand Arabic, read the English. And if reading just by itself is too hard, my usual recommendation, and I'm taking this straight from uh, Chaplain Omar Muzaffar, uh, Chicago local, um, is that uh, underline uh, al- any reference to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on every page mm. as you're going through and reading. It's like an active reading. Um, and one of the gems or goals behind it is you get really, you start becoming, developing a sense of when a story takes place, like which names of Allah will come first. And you start understanding how Allah talks about Allah's self. Another kind of thing that starts happening is if you get used to looking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, you will get used to looking for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala outside of the Quran. That starts taking place as well. And then if you've maybe done that already, next year, next time you go through it, every time there's a mention of prophethood, you underline it. And then the next year, once you're done with that, all the commands and negations, the next year after that, all of the times when nature is talked about and you find start finding one fourth of the Quran is nature. The next time after that, anytime a story is spoken about. What I did last year is anytime there was a conversation that's found in the Quran, um, I would underline and pay special attention to it. So it's, it's different things um, every single time. I have my own personal uh, um, goal, but that's usually my approach. Look at the Quran like you've never seen it before, because one of the goals of this month is to develop a relationship with the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that maybe you've never really thought about before. I love it. I love it. Subhanallah. That's that's amazing. So we talked a lot about the spiritual side. We talked about the physical side. I kind of want to delve in a little bit uh, to the social side now, right? Because a lot of people... You know, when right now, if you if you are to go through your phone right now, you're going to see Ramadan programming by X organization, Ramadan tafsir by another organization, and everyone's going to want to do so much. And you kind of even just mentioned now, like you do one portion this year, you do something the next year. So (laughs) kind of like talk to me a little bit about like in terms of programming. I know everyone wants to watch everything and wants to do everything. Talk to me a little bit about like you know, the, 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 like how, how to navigate trying to do everything opposed to trying to do like quality things and not try to do everything and exhaust yourself and things of that sort. Yeah. So I'm going to say something very unpopular <laughs> and that is uh, that we're a culture or we've become a culture and the pandemic has really cemented this of constantly listening um, uh, to things. So like people are on podcasts all the time. No, no offense to anyone, of course, was listening to this. Um, sometimes it's good to do so, but we start using, using so much of our time to just consume, to consume, consume by listening, um, or we're speaking all the time. And something I like us to really appreciate is the first revelation in our tradition that was given to the Prophet was Iqra, was to recite or read is another way of looking at it. There's something beautiful that happens when you read and you recite. It's you read someone else's words with your own voice. 
because it empowers your voice with the thoughts of Allah, the, the thoughts that Allah SWT put down. There's empowerment and humility at the same time. We're so used to doing what? When we listen to others, we empower others. And when we speak, we become arrogant. Mm. Reading and reciting is that perfect balance in between. So I'm not saying to not listen to podcasts, not to listen to the fasir or these programming that are being put on, but really take time to engage actively yourself because it's not just about getting through content. It's about you being affected by the content and that happens with active engagement. So my general recommendation, if there's an opportunity to join a halaqa where you get to speak and present and participate, that's and to me, it, joining one halaqa is worth listening to five classes um, because of that opportunity for it to be a, you to hold yourself accountable and for others to hold you accountable, whether that's in person or digitally. A, a recitation or reading of a book is preferable. And even those of us who like audiobooks, I know it sounds, it's going to be unpopular, but read it. You want to develop your own inner voice, that my voice is consuming more information because that's a point of reading empowers you. Listening, not as much. Speaking, definitely not as much. Um, so that would be kind of uh, uh, my advice there of how to navigate that. SubhanAllah. May, may Allah reward you. And that's deep. Uh, but I think that's something, at least for myself, first and foremost, needed, needed to hear. I guess kind of concluding with, with the subject of Ramadan, I really wanted to hit home. And it's kind of crazy because now we're looping back something that I brought up earlier. And that is the aspect of time management, because you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying to think back when I was in college, but you know, end of April, early May, that's finals time too. It so, is. Oh, look at that. So people are going to, you know, really want to maximize the month of Ramadan and really try to be the best versions of themselves. But then they're also going to be having and dealing with the pressures of getting the good grades for their finals. Mm -hmm. So I guess it'd be really helpful for all of us, myself first and foremost, if you can shed some light on productivity, time management, and finding, finding that balance of being and education and things of that sort. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And one way I like introducing this with my students on campus is letting them know that uh, time management is really, really important. But in my opinion, more important is actually energy management. And what I mean by that is I know like sometimes people look at my schedule and they think I'm super busy. I know how much time I waste. Uh, and I know that I waste a lot of time, but when do I find myself wasting the most amount of time is when I uh, haven't managed myself appropriately. What I mean by energy management, it's almost getting into a conversation around mental health, but I talk about protective factors of there are things that you can engage in that actually increase your overall output. And these are what are known oftentimes in psychology as protective factors. So there are activities that you engage in that make you healthier overall. And then there's activities that you engage in that really suck up resiliency from you. Um, so my advice in Ramadan, if you want to be more efficient, is don't just focus on the things that completely draw out your energy. And that's oftentimes, unfortunately, what we like to schedule. We schedule all of our deadlines. We schedule all of our goals that are going to be really costly for us um, and, and, and start dropping the things in our life that actually give us energy, which would be things like spending time with your family. That's a good way of recreating actual recreation activities, going on walks, appreciating nature, um, spending time in hobbies. 
I know we'd like to minimize that in Ramadan, but you need it uh, to a certain extent. So don't completely cut them out. That'll actually start getting in the way of your efficiency to accomplish some of those goal, those other goals that you have of like reciting more, of getting better grades this semester. Um, any student knows this, that two hours of studying are not the same. Like there'll be certain times in which you literally sat in front of a screen or your notebook and just wasted a whole hour. And other times within 10 minutes, you were able to get through what you couldn't in 20, in, in 10 hours of studying. Um, and what's the difference? Because you had more energy and more motivation in one of them. So usually what my recommendation is, find what are your protective factors in your life, the healthy ones. Um, and there's a list that can be looked up of universal protective factors. Um, th th that people can look into. So creative output is typically a protective factor. Tactile creation, things like sewing, gardening, all of those type of things are considered protective factors. Appreciation of aesthetic beauties. Uh, sometimes for people, it's looking at um, well-formed objects like architecture, other people's cars, whatever the case may be. These activities that you engage in that you know give you energy, um, schedule them in because this does two things. When you schedule those things that you enjoy in, one is it makes sure that you're hitting them appropriately. And next is you don't spend more time on them than necessary. We normally binge things when we haven't met a need of ours for a long time. So we binge on it. But if we systematically scratch that itch, we can then get the benefit that it has with it and then move on to maybe one of our other goals. Um, so the first thing is things that you do to recreate, don't ignore them, schedule them. Then from there, think about the things that require a bunch of energy that's going to take you more time than maybe normal. So if it's studying, yes, schedule studying time into it. But again, there's breaks that are found within it so that um, the studying doesn't just become a waste of time. Schedule recitation of Quran. Everyone should have a Quran goal that they get through. And don't force yourself to have the goal that other people have. Um, like if someone else does like two khatams a year, no, that doesn't have to be your goal. Your goal is literally better than my Ramadan from last year. That's, that's the goal. And maybe you can't do that, but better than maybe last month. Start with a goal that's, uh, that's relatively realistic and push yourself towards it. Um, but yeah, those are just the two or three things I would share is uh, um, yeah, on time management. Don't neglect your recreation. That's important but be honest with yourself about um, what that looks like. And uh, what you're aiming for is to be overall healthier. Ramadan is not meant to be a moment that you so exhaust yourself that you're like, well, I've hit Ibadah for the year. <laughs> that's not it. So you find a new limit of something that's realistic for you to continue. You leave the month in a better state than you came in the, uh, into the month with. SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah, man. May Allah reward you, Kaiser. That was, that was beautiful. And I think that was a beautiful way to kind of conclude how we can maximize the, the month of Ramadan, incorporating our physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, and of course, our studies as, as well. So, so I guess, Kaiser, what we always do in every podcast, and I want to make sure we do this as well, something little, a little fun, and we call it like a rapid fire round. Is that okay? We just ask a couple of questions on the fly. We'd love to kind of hear your, your, your answers, inshallah. Sounds good. Awesome. So we just got like five questions and then we can conclude. So the first question is, okay, sir, what is your favorite food? And I'm not good at these rapid fire things. There's so much. So at the moment, I have a, a taste for sushi. Okay, cool. Very nice. All right. So the second question is, I got this from your bio. So I noticed you like comics. What's your, what's your favorite comic series? It could be a movie. Talk to me about that. 
So personality wise, I have um, uh, just an affinity to Spider-Man and the Flash. Uh, they both have this like wittiness to them and this kind of humility to them, which I don't find in other comic book or in other superhero type figures. So those two would probably be it. Okay, cool. I totally see you on that. Uh, favorite book? Ooh, that's a tough one. And I'm not going to answer the typical like uh, answer that a religious person is supposed to give. <laughs> well, of course, that's the actual answer. But um, hmm. There's a book called The Sky So Big and Black. Um, it's a sci-fi book that I read probably in the seventh grade. Uh, that's probably the one I would choose. Wow. SubhanAllah. Awesome. Okay. This is a fun one. Your favorite place to travel post-pandemic. Where's your go-to place? So this is going to be a like a cheating answer, but for me, it's who you travel with. That's really important. Um, I haven't been able to take my family on vacation for a while. Um, so it's really, it doesn't really matter where we go. It's who I want to travel with. Um, that's but, amazing. Mashallah. That's amazing. All right. Last question. This is, we're about to go zero to a hundred. We're going to go really deep. And this is my favorite question to ask anyone I, we, we talk to. And especially with you, I think this is going to be really, really interesting and, and, and exciting to hear your answer. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Ooh. <laughs> um, don't let your education get in the way of your learning. Wow. SubhanAllah. Well, well, may Allah reward you, Kaiser. I wanted to give you the floor one more time if you had any closing words, remarks, advice, or anything that you wanted to give, inshallah, before we conclude? Um, the one closing statement I would make, especially when it comes to Ramadan preparation, as subhanAllah, we're less than a week away from Ramadan now. Allahumma balighna Ramadan. May Allah allow us to live up to and live live up to Ramadan and live in the state of Ramadan. I mean, Rabbil Alameen. Um, but that is that right after the ayat about Ramadan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually says, وَإِذَا سَعَدَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ That when, when my servant asks of me, I am near. So, أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّاعِ إِذَا دَعَانِي I answer the call of the caller whenever they call. Um, and the reason I want to end with this is oftentimes we think about in Ramadan, what am I supposed to do? How do I know if it's been successful? I think this ayah is the, the way if you know if it's successful. If you're talking to Allah, um, your Ramadan has been successful. And then the idea of, well, uh, I'm just talking to Allah. When does Allah talk back? Like a conversation is supposed to be one in which you speak and then I speak, you speak and then I speak. Well, we're talking about talking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What comes next? Um, uh, when you listen to Allah or you answer Allah, how do you listen to Allah? The Quran is being recited. Your actions become the uh, the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of it, the way they, your recitation becomes the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and then, so that they may be guided. This is a conversation that's going to set you straight. Like you talk, speak to Allah, you listen to Allah. We talk about, again, I'm in the field of chaplaincy and I can tell you that sometimes there are conversations that people have that they tell me about that literally change their lives. Uh, and when we think about what is it that we're celebrating in Ramadan, it is that Allah wants to have a conversation with you and that can make you guided.
that's what we're trying to achieve. That's what we're trying to get to. So what do you do at the end of the day? What do you want to do more of this Ramadan? Talk to Allah more and listen to Allah more. That's it. Um, because that's a conversation that's going to completely change your life. SubhanAllah. May, may Allah reward you and may Allah grant you and your family so much happiness, Kaiser, in this life and the next. And for everyone listening, uh, keep Kaiser in your du'as. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave your reflections in the comments down below. And alhamdulillah, we will see you on the next episode of the MSA National Podcast. Assalamu alaikum.